This is VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. U.S. President Joe Biden says Russia's war in Ukraine amounts to genocide, accusing Russian President Vladimir Putin of trying to wipe out the idea of even being a Ukrainian. The evidence is mounting. It's different than it was last week. The more evidence is coming out of the literally the horrible things that the Russians have done in Ukraine. And we're going to only learn more and more about the devastation. And uh, we'll let the lawyers decide internationally whether or not it qualifies. But it sure seems that way to me. Biden's comments drew praise from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who had encouraged Western leaders to use the term to describe Russia's invasion of his country. A United Nations treaty to which the U.S. is a party defines genocide as actions taken with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. Past American leaders often have dodged formally declaring bloody campaigns such as Russia's and Ukraine as genocide, hesitating to trigger an obligation that under international convention requires signing countries to intervene once genocide is formally identified. Russian President Vladimir Putin has vowed that Russia's offensive in Ukraine would continue until its goals are fulfilled. He insisted Tuesday the campaign was going as planned despite a major withdrawal in the face of a stiff Ukrainian opposition and significant losses. Russian troops have been thwarted in their push toward Ukraine's capital and are now focusing on the eastern Donbass region. Ukraine said Tuesday it is investigating a claim that a poisonous substance had been dropped on its troops there. It was not clear what the substance might be, but Western officials warned that any use of chemical weapons by Russia would be a serious escalation of the already devastating war. This is VOA News. Police in New York focus on a van renter in the Brooklyn subway shooting probe. AP correspondent Mike Gracia with more details. Authorities said Tuesday night they remain on the hunt for a gunman who wore a gas mask and construction vest and fired at least 33 bullets in a rush hour New York City subway train. At least 10 people were wounded, but miraculously no one died. New York City Police Commissioner Keechant Sewell said the focus of the investigation is on the renter of a van possibly connected to the attack. We do have a person of interest in this investigation. New York Governor Kathy Hochul said neighboring states will assist in the hunt. We believe that if this person has left the state, we'll be able to use the resources of our connections and relationships that we have with nine neighboring states to help bring this person to justice. Five people were left in critical condition but expected to survive. At least 29 people were treated at hospitals. I'm Mike Gracia. Survivors and local authorities say an armed gang killed more than 100 people in a remote part of northern Nigeria. The attackers targeted four villages in uh, the Plateau State, the most recent in a series of violent attacks in Nigeria's north. Such attacks in Nigeria's northern region have become frequent, especially between the Fulani Muslims, who are not or mostly cattle herders, and Christian communities from uh, other ethnic groups who are mainly farmers. The conflict over access to land and water has further worsened the sectarian division between Christians and Muslims in Nigeria, Africa's most populous nation, with its 206 million people deeply divided along religious lines. 
A cryptocurrency expert has been sentenced to more than five years in federal prison for helping North Korea evade U.S. sanctions. 39-year-old Virgil Griffith pleaded guilty last year to conspiracy, admitting he presented uh, uh, at a cryptocurrency conference in North Korea in 2019. That was even after the U.S. government denied his request to travel there. Prosecutors say that Griffith, a well-known hacker, also developed cryptocurrency infrastructure and equipment inside North Korea. Defense attorney Brian Klein described Griffith as a brilliant scientist who developed a curiosity bordering an obsession with North Korea. He said Griffith loves his country and never set out to do any harm. Recapping our top story, U.S. President Joe Biden says that Russia's war in Ukraine does amount to Ukraine and has accused Russian President Vladimir Putin of trying to wipe out the idea of even being Ukrainian. Meanwhile, Russia's President Vladimir Putin has vowed that Russia's offensive in Ukraine will in fact continue until its goals are fulfilled. There is more at VOANews.com. Via remote, I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Wednesday, April 13th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedorfo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, Ukrainian officials say a Russian offensive to capture Mariupol and cities in the east is underway. So while it may not be a flashbang sign that the offensive has started, clearly elements of a second offensive against Ukraine has started. Aid agencies say an estimated 250 million people in Africa lack access to adequate food. The UN World Food Program says the number of people affected by the ongoing food crisis in West and Central Africa has quadrupled over the last three years. An authority said at least 10 people were shot when a gunman opened fire in Brooklyn, New York. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Ukrainian officials say the expected Russian offensive to capture Mariupol and cities in the east is underway. This, as Russian President Vladimir Putin vowed that his bloody offensive will continue until its goals are fulfilled. He insisted Tuesday the campaign was going as planned, despite a major withdrawal in the face of stiff Ukrainian opposition and significant losses of troops and hardware in an attempt to capture Kyiv. As Ukrainian forces brace for the looming battles, I spoke with VOA's Pentagon correspondent Kalabab about the Defense Department's reading of the latest development. Senior defense officials have been saying that there is a clear buildup of Russian forces as they continue to resupply. There has been evidence of a convoy that can clearly be seen from satellites. Convoy that is currently about 60 kilometers from Izium in the south, and it is heading south. We know that there have been increased airstrikes at the east in the Mariupol area as well. So while it may not be a flashbang, clear-cut sign that the offensive has started, clearly elements of a second wave, a second offensive against Ukraine has started. And how is the uh, Pentagon reacting to this? 
Well, the Pentagon continues to supply Ukrainian forces with weapons and equipment that it needs. You've heard about just in recent days an 800 million aid package that has gone into Ukraine, a 100 million aid package that has gone into Ukraine. You've heard about a hundred of these switchblades, defensive weapons that have entered in Ukraine. Most of them have already entered in Ukraine, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said today. And they have said that they will continue to help Ukrainians as much as they can. There was a question that came up whether or not additional systems that the Ukrainians aren't trained for might be sent in from the United States. And a senior defense official wouldn't say yes or no, but officials said that if the United States determined, along with the Ukrainians, that there's something else that they can do that can help stop this Russian fight then the U.S. is certainly willing to talk to them about that and the training aspect of that, just because the Ukrainians aren't trained in a certain weapon system, would not prohibit any sort of transfer. Fears have been expressed about the use of chemical weapons. What is the Pentagon saying? Has Russian troops used chemical weapons in Ukraine? So the Pentagon cannot confirm whether or not chemical agents were used in Mariupol. That has been reported by the Ukrainian government, but the Pentagon, the U.S. Defense Department, is not on the ground. Uh, Mariupol is under siege right now. There really isn't a way for the U.S. to get to Mariupol to confirm whether or not these attacks did happen. So that's one thing that Pentagon Press Secretary Kirby stressed today. I actually pressed him on not specifically to Mariupol, but what conditions is the United States government considering when they're thinking about a potential response to chemical weapons? Because President Biden had said that if chemical weapons are used in Ukraine, the United States would respond. And so the the press secretary would not go into the details because he said he didn't want to get ahead of any sort of decisions that would be made should chemical weapons be used. But some of the things that we can look to consider, we can look to see if the administration will take into account how many people are affected, the scope of the attack, what types of chemicals have been used. So there are a lot of things that can go into how the U.S. and how NATO allies would respond to a chemical attack. It's not going to be a situation to where if there's any sort of chemical attack where one, two, or three people are hurt, that a massive response will come down for the U.S. and NATO. That is not what the U.S. has said. It will definitely be tailored based on what is happening on the ground in Ukraine. That's VOA's Pentagon correspondent Carla Bob speaking with me from Washington. The World Trade Organization reports the war in Ukraine has dealt a severe blow to the global economy. It says the war has shattered expectations of a recovery from the damaging impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on world trade and business confidence. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The Russia-Ukraine conflict has cast a pall over the global economy. This has prompted World Trade Organization economists to downgrade their forecast for world trade over the next two years. They now expect world merchandise trade to grow by 3% this year and pick up slightly to 3.2% in 2023. This is down from the previous 4.7% projection. They say these figures are likely to be revised again given the uncertainty from the fallout of the war in Ukraine. WTO Director General Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala says the economic reverberations of this conflict extend far beyond Ukraine's borders. It's now clear that the double whammy of the pandemic and the war has disrupted supply chains, increased inflationary pressures, 
and lowered expectations for output and trade growth. These events and the enormous uncertainty they have created make for a complex forecasting environment. The WTO finds the most immediate economic impact of the war has been a sharp rise in the price of food, energy, fertilizer, and some important minerals. Okonjo Iwela notes Russia and Ukraine are key suppliers of these commodities in the world market. She warns a potential food crisis is looming. She notes poor countries are likely to suffer most from high food prices because they tend to spend a large portion of their income on food. Low-income food deficit countries saw their food bill rise 20% in 2021, an increase of $120 billion. 35 African countries import food from Ukraine, Russia, or both. The problem of high food prices is compounded by high fuel prices, and expensive fertilizer represents a threat to future crop yields. Egypt and Tunisia import about 80% of their wheat from Ukraine and Russia. Other countries, such as Lebanon and Haiti, also depend heavily upon wheat imports from these countries. The World Food Programme warns the ongoing war in Ukraine will increase global hunger. Ukraine is due to harvest its winter crop in July and plant next season's crop in September. WTO Director General Okonjo Iwela says it is crucial that farmers be allowed to cultivate and harvest their wheat crops to lessen a food crisis. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. An estimated 250 million people in Africa lack access to daily food with the number impacted in West and Central Africa expected to reach a record high. Officials and aid groups from more than 50 African countries met this week in Equatorial Guinea to discuss ways of improving the continent's agricultural food systems. Anika Hamashlag reports from Dakar, Senegal. The UN World Food Programme says the number of people affected by the ongoing food crisis in West and Central Africa has quadrupled over the last three years, rising from 10.7 million in 2019 to 41 million today. Countries in the Horn of Africa are also experiencing one of their worst food crises following three consecutive poor rainy seasons. Food insecurity has caused a massive nutrition crisis, particularly among small children, and has also fueled a huge population displacement as people leave rural areas in search of better economic opportunities. Many factors are at play. Extreme weather events such as drought and floods are occurring more regularly. And in some countries, conflict prevents farmers from planting or harvesting crops. As a result, many African countries have become increasingly reliant on food imports. So when the COVID-19 pandemic hit and disrupted global and regional trade, the continent suffered. Abebe Hayek Gabriel is the Assistant Director General of the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization. Each time a new crisis hits, it adds to what is already a very precarious situation. And the economic base is not very strong. Productivity and production of food is one of the lowest in the world. Not enough is being produced. The situation has been further complicated by the war in Ukraine. More than 20 African countries depend on Ukraine or Russia or both for wheat imports, Haley Gabrielle said, including 13 which depend on the warring nations for more than half of their annual wheat supply. Many African countries are also heavily reliant on fertilizer imports from Russia. Benoit Thierry is the West Africa representative for the International Fund for Agricultural Development. In Africa, not all countries are self-sufficient. Senegal is importing 50% of its food, and we think that all the governments should now get organized to ensure self-sufficiency in their countries. 
Past agricultural plans have had a scope of three to five years, Thierry said, but governments should be thinking longer term. At this week's UN food conference, government officials are expected to discuss ways of decreasing Africa's dependence on imports by providing emergency support to farmers, taking advantage of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, and investing in ecosystem restoration and resource management. Annika Hammerschlag for VOA News, Dakar, Senegal. UN agencies are calling on international donors to act now and provide the funds needed to prevent another potentially devastating farming in Somalia. Millions of Somalis are in need of life-saving assistance, as Lisa Schlein again reports for VOA from Geneva. Three years of extreme drought has brought Somalia to its knees. Some 6 million people, or 40% of the population, are facing acute hunger because the rains have failed, their crops have withered, and their livestock has died. The United Nations says three-quarters of a million people have been forced to leave their homes in search of food for themselves and grazing land for their cattle. Last week, a U.N. food security report stated that Somalia is on the brink of a humanitarian disaster. Etienne Peterschmidt is the U.N. Food and Agriculture Organization representative in Somalia. Speaking from the capital Mogadishu, Peterschmidt says some 81,000 people already are suffering from catastrophic conditions in some areas of the country. He says they are facing starvation, malnutrition, loss of livestock, crops and other assets, and eventually disease and death. Almost a quarter of a million people died the last time famine was declared in Somalia. And with the current likelihood of poor rain, skyrocketing food prices, and huge funding shortfall, as was already mentioned also, it means a perfect storm in is brewing for another catastrophic event in which millions of people are at risk of sliding into famine. Children accounted for nearly half of the quarter million people who died in Somalia's last famine in 2011. So far, the UN's $1.4 billion 2022 humanitarian response plan for Somalia is less than 5% funded. The World Food Program's deputy country director in Somalia, Lara Fossey, says her agency must make some hard choices on how to distribute aid because of a lack of money. We've already prioritized our very limited nutrition funding to treat malnutrition rather than to prevent it. And this, of course, uh, will mean that more people are likely then to fall into needing treatment for acute malnutrition in the longer term. And we're taking from the hungry to feed the starving. Fossey warns the threat of famine may force people into negative coping strategies like selling off livestock and other assets that, she says, will undermine their long-term ability to support themselves and force them to remain dependent on humanitarian relief. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In other news, authorities say at least 10 people were shot and six others injured when a gunman in a gas mask filled a rush hour subway train with smoke and opened fire in Brooklyn, New York. The shooter was on the loose late Tuesday. Officials say five people are in critical condition but expected to survive. The attack is not being investigated as terrorism, but Police Commissioner Kichan Sewell says she isn't ruling out anything. The attack has left some New Yorkers jittery about riding the nation's busiest subway system and prompted officials to increase policing at transportation hubs.
from Philadelphia to Connecticut. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonnews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua for in Washington. The Taliban's return to power in Afghanistan has left its mark on thousands of Afghans in the Indian capital who over the past two decades set up businesses to cater to Afghans who used to visit India. Now, as the flow of visitors from Afghanistan dries up, their livelihoods have been hard hit. For VOA, Anjana Pasrisha has this report from New Delhi. Hashmat Firzada opened this restaurant selling Afghan cuisine after returning from Afghanistan to live in the Indian capital 15 years ago. We were not used to the spices here, so I started this restaurant. It solved our problem. The restaurant was among the scores of businesses that mushroomed in this neighborhood to cater to the tens of thousands of Afghans who began visiting India after the ouster of the Taliban in 2001. This area came to be known as Little Kabul. But since the Taliban's return to Afghanistan last August, flights between New Delhi and Kabul are suspended. India has no diplomatic presence in the country. The flow of Afghan visitors has dried up. Pirzada now walks into a restaurant that is usually nearly empty, a far cry from his once flourishing business. Our business is 80% of our business. So it has plummeted by 80%. Now Indians are people from Indian Gulf countries come, but there are virtually no Afghans. It is the same story in pharmacies, supermarkets, bread stores, cafes and shops that with signages in Dari made Afghan visitors feel at home. Many came for affordable medical treatment, others for business. Students enrolled in colleges as India offered scholarships to Afghans in a bid to build soft power in the country. Afghans in India, who had rebuilt their lives around these small businesses, are devastated. Many are refugees, an estimated 16,000 live in India. Like Ajmal Nazari, who came to New Delhi 10 years ago to escape the conflict in his country. Our business is just down to 10% of what it used to be. And there is no income, no one is getting any work. In my family, three or four members used to work. Now I'm the only one who has a job. But even my salary is down to 40%. Many shops have shuttered. Roadside stores that were once buzzing are now desolate. All of us are in distress because no one is coming from Afghanistan. We cannot make a living by selling a handful of bread and rolls, small children and daughter at home. It is very tough to manage. They also worry about friends and relatives back home. I have no words to explain how I feel. What is in the heart, let it stay in the heart. Although far away from Afghanistan, the tumultuous events in the homeland they left years ago have once again scarred their lives. Anjana Pasricha for VOA News, New Delhi.
During a recent visit at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken called massacres against Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, a country also known as Burma, quote, genocide. The museum's exhibition, quote, Burma's Path to Genocide, unquote, sheds light on how the Rohingya, once citizens of the country, have been systematically targeted and eradicated. VOA's Penelope Pulu has more. In 2017, in western Myanmar, a country also known as Burma, the military attacked the largely Muslim Rohingya communities in Rakhine state. Soldiers burned homes, schools, stores, and mosques. More than 9,000 Rohingya were killed. Burma's Path to Genocide, an exhibition at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, describes the plight of the Rohingya in Myanmar through videos, pictures, personal accounts, and historic documentation. During a recent speech at the museum, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken called the Myanmar military's widespread and systematic mass atrocities against the Rohingya genocide. Today marks the 8th, as I have determined that members of the Burmese military committed genocide and crimes against humanity against Rohingya. Well, I think the determination by the U.S. helps guard against genocide denial. It sets a record. Um, I think the Secretary of State Blinken was very clear in his remarks and his explanation of why uh, the determination was made to show all of the evidence, evidence not only here in the, in the Holocaust Museum's exhibition, but evidence collected by the State Department, by uh, independent investigators, by the Rohingya community themselves, to show that, yes, a genocide did happen. According to the United Nations Refugee Agency, since 2017, about 900,000 Rohingya have fled their homes in Myanmar's Rakhine state and found refuge in Bangladesh. In their testimonies, Rohingya survivors describe losing their children, husbands, and parents. Their displacement is a dire consequence of decades-long systematic elimination, first through paperwork, then by brute force, says Andrew Gittleman. The Rohingya people who we've spoken with said there was a time when they belonged. In, in Burma, in Myanmar. And they were, you know, they worked as civil servants, they worked as teachers, they were allowed to go to university, they were allowed to access uh, rights and opportunities within the country just as, as other people would. And yes, they were a minority in terms of their ethnicity and religion, but they were not treated the way that they were later on in the 20th century. Gradually, Gittleman says, Myanmar's military regime chipped away at the identity of the Rohingya. Authorities in Myanmar confiscated their national ID cards. By 1982, the Rohingya, a Muslim minority within a largely Buddhist country, were no longer recognized. Penelope Pulu, VOA News, Washington. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, Thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com. Until next time, I am Chinedo in Washington, wishing you a great day. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government.
The United States is concerned over growing tensions in South Sudan, including recent clashes between the South Sudan People's Defense Forces and the Sudan People's Liberation Army Movement in Opposition, or SPLMIO, in Upper Nile State. Former rivals President Salva Kiir and his vice president, Rik Makar, have struggled to enforce a peace agreement signed in 2018 to end a five-year civil war. State Department spokesperson Ned Price called on both sides to observe fully their obligations under the existing peace agreement. The SPLMIO announced its withdrawal from a body overseeing the peace process over unprovoked attacks on its bases by its peace partner. Spokesperson Price called on the SPLMIO to immediately reverse this decision. At the same time, he said, ceasefire monitoring bodies must investigate the recent violence and hold perpetrators responsible. The United States calls on President Kiir and First Vice President Makar to de-escalate tensions, resume implementation of key long-delayed provisions of the revitalized peace agreement, including taking the necessary steps to establish an inclusive process to draft a new constitution, to establish necessary electoral legislation and mechanisms, and to respect the freedoms of expression, association, and peaceful assembly. Regional states and institutions, namely the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, need to take swift action to lower tensions and put the peace process back on track. All sides bear responsibility for the deteriorating situation, declared spokesperson Price. Neither President Kiir nor First Vice President Makar have made good faith efforts to implement the provisions of the revitalized peace agreement, and both have resisted serious attempts to move South Sudan towards the peace, security, and prosperity the South Sudanese people continue to desire. The United States calls on all members of the revitalized transitional government of national unity to take the actions necessary to be seen as credible in the eyes of the South Sudanese people, starting with full adherence to and implementation of the 2018 peace agreement. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Washington, bop, bop, zip.